Hello and welcome to Skepticast, the show that makes you cocktail party smart in 15 minutes-ish. Today, I will be indulging in one of my favorite pastimes, mansplaining women's issues. Thankfully for everyone, that's not actually true. We have a guest today with actual qualifications. Today's topic is maternal mortality in the United States. Maternal mortality refers to deaths due to pregnancy or childbirth. Among wealthy countries, the United States ranks at or near the bottom. We're actually worse than Russia. Russia, the country whose COVID vaccine was actually just vodka shots and pictures of Vladimir Putin shirtless, actually does better than the United States on maternal health. The maternal mortality rate in the United States is 19 deaths per 100,000 pregnancies. For comparison, the average across the EU was just six. Now, to put that in context, that still means that 99.9% of pregnancies in the US, the mother is safe, or at least doesn't have fatal complications. But still, when we compare to other peer countries, the United States is only slightly better at keeping mom alive than Bambi. And it's significantly worse for Black women in the United States. For white, Asian, and Hispanic women, the rate is about 12 to 13 deaths per 100,000 births. For Black women, it's 40 deaths, over three times higher. Now, there are a lot of factors at play that can explain this discrepancy, none of which I am qualified to speak about, which is why I am thrilled to have our guest today, Dr. Fleeta Mask-Jackson. Dr. Jackson is the president of research firm Majeka LLC and a nationally recognized expert on maternal mortality with a focus on the African-American community. She has also served as an advisor on maternal and infant mortality to institutions like Harvard Medical School and the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on, Cooper. It's good to talk with you. So I want to start with a high-level question that came up as I was doing research with my producer Mimi on this. It feels like in the public discourse, maternal health feels a little bit taboo to discuss. Do you agree with that? And do you think that's changing? And looking forward, what would you like to see change to make it a more commonly discussed area in the medical community? Well, Coop, I really like the way that you frame that because it's not so much a taboo, but there is a silencing around maternal health. This whole issue in terms of maternal mortality, it's been something that we really did not expect to see at this time. And in part, we weren't paying much attention to it. So there has been a rise in the rates of maternal mortality over the last 30 years. And then all of a sudden, someone said, look, let's look at this. And so it's not that it's taboo, but we've been quiet about it. I think it's quiet because women who die as the result of a pregnancy is just unheard of in this century. And so that's one of the things. And so that's where we are now. And we now have a greater attention to it. Amnesty International, I will tell you, was the first group that brought it to my attention. I received a call many years ago about it. I really didn't know what they were referring to. And to think that we in the United States with the great investment in business with MBA students, you understand the level of investment that we're putting in healthcare in this country as compared to other places in the world. And yet we don't fare as well as we should. And so to kind of frame the discussion today, so I mentioned it a little bit in the intro, but I would love to hear when we talk about maternal mortality, what specifically is the definition that you use? Uh, the maternal mortality really are deaths that are associated with pregnancy outcomes that are specifically pregnancy related. So maternal mortality are those things like hemorrhaging, 
cardiovascular disease, and mainly in that realm, those are really the leading causes of maternal mortality. But we're basically talking about deaths that are directly associated with pregnancy and childbirth. Interestingly enough, most of the maternal deaths that we see in this country occur after birth, after a woman has given birth. And that makes it more challenging because by that time, the woman has left the care, the prenatal care, all the things that happened for nine months. And so she's in another situation. And what we find is that the healthcare system has not been really as responsive to what happens after pregnancy as it is to what happens during pregnancy. So mm-hmm. essentially, it is related to deaths that are directly related to or associated with the pregnancy itself. And what got us intrigued by this topic is hearing about how much worse the United States does compared to our peer countries. Mm -hmm. So what do you think other countries are doing right that we're doing wrong? Well, one of the things is if you look at England, where they really have a comprehensive healthcare system, and it really is a system that is responsive to everyone, that gives everyone access to care. But in the maternal mortality arena, there are more options in terms of the way that a woman can give birth. So midwifery is still very popular in England, as well as the traditional OBGYN setting, so that all of the needs that a woman has during pregnancy are better met than here. We do not have the menu of services such as midwifery, such as doulas, such as outpatient care that women receive. And I think that really accounts for it. That really goes across the board in terms of other health outcomes that we see. The United States, compared to other countries, comparable countries, just does not do as well. And it's because the health care is more available, it's comprehensive, it is something that follows the woman and the family throughout, and there's more time for individuals to have leaves during pregnancy. So a host of things, not just what happens in the medical care arena, but what happens to support an individual outside of that center. And when we were doing our research, one of the interesting things we discovered was that the U.S. actually has not reported an official maternal mortality rate since, I believe, 2007. And so when we found the numbers, we looked at estimates from the World Bank or other public health organizations. In your research, how have you handled the issue of just getting clear data? That is a significant issue because some places in the United States report real-time data. Other places, I am here in Georgia, for instance, there's always a lag in the data. And so it's highly problematic in terms of getting the data. Now, in my case, I collect primary data. I actually do refer to the population data for Georgia and other places that I'm looking at. But I also understand that there's always a lag in there. And that is highly problematic. So having real-time data gives me some way to say, this is what's happening with women right now. This is what they're saying right now. This is what's going on in the ground. I'm not sure exactly how it looks within the context of the larger situation that's taking place around them in terms of deaths and births and morbidity data and so forth. But I can really look at it and understand that that is a shortcoming. That is always a shortcoming. And since we don't have a universal system for collecting the data and for sharing the data, 
is problematic in terms of what we actually know about the rates of maternal mortality in the country as a whole. So we understand that those things do not always reflect what is happening at the time in which we're doing our investigation. But it is a major problem. And we see that not just only in pregnancy data, but healthcare data as a whole in terms of all the different ways it's collected, the ways in which it's reported, the lag in terms of how it's disseminated. This is a major, major issue. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that it's a reminder of why it's so important to have researchers like you and your peers who are able to at least look at some primary data and help us illustrate this issue. And so as we talked about in the intro, and I know this is a focal area of your research, the United States lags peer countries, but specifically, we very significantly underperform with African-American women. The maternal mortality rate is three times more than it is for white women. So what do you think are some of the key factors that explain this discrepancy? We certainly have been looking at this and not shocked because when we looked at the birth outcomes, that is the outcomes for infants born to Black women, we know that those babies are twice as likely to be born preterm and low birth weight. So when the data was presented in terms of disparities for black and white women, it certainly followed that same pattern. But worse, as you said, three times in some places like New York City is 12 to 13 times higher, surprisingly, given all the resources that are there. But we looked at several things. A study that was recently reported from the CDC in terms of looking at the black-white discrepancy showed that African-American women, well-educated, that is, have a college degree and higher, had worse birth outcomes than white women who only had a high school diploma. It's a shocking finding, but it's one that we also have seen in the birth outcome data. And what it tells us is that it's not about poverty. The poverty is not the explanation when you have well-educated women who not only look worse than their white counterparts, but worse than women who have far less education and the resources that go along with having less education. But it tells us that there's something that's going on that's deeper, that's more systemic. And we attribute it to racism, quite honestly, that there's the racism that is experienced in the healthcare system itself. That is the inequality in terms of what we call the social determinants of health regarding housing and education, employment, wages, environmental degradation, that these things are embodied. They get into the bodies of black women and create a risk that can lead to maternal mortality. As I indicated to you before, hemorrhaging is an issue Cardiovascular distress is certainly one of the main causes, as well as issues concerned with hypertension. Those are the leading areas that have been identified as causes for maternal mortality. Now, all of those conditions that I have named are also linked to discrimination and discrimination related to stress. And so we believe that it is the conditions under which Black women live and what they experienced in the healthcare system in terms of not having equal access to the best possible care, as well as all the options for childbirth as a key contributor to the disparities that we see in maternal mortality. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to unpack in that answer. And I'd like to kind of go through some of the pieces which you described there. Yeah. So you kind of broke it down very broadly speaking into sort of direct racism experience in the healthcare system. You could say sort of the social systemic racism experience more broadly, and then also how that manifests itself with stress in especially Black women's bodies. So to start with the healthcare system, I think a lot of people are really surprised by the notion that a very well-educated, well-off Black woman who's living in a nice neighborhood might actually still experience racism when she goes to the doctor. Can you kind of walk through some of the research and some examples of that for people who might not be familiar with that? Okay, so the way the research has been conducted to demonstrate the link between racism and poor birth outcomes, particularly stress, is that we have looked at the experiences of stress in different categories of stress. So there's stress that we call chronic stress that individuals experience daily. That might be something as mundane as trying to get through traffic to go from one location to another. There's acute stress, which suggests that individuals have a certain pattern in their lives that's disrupted by a major event like death or Mm -hmm. losing your job or having to move or a relationship dissolving. And then there's traumatic stress, which is really more than a bump or accident on the road, but something that really climbs a high mountain in terms of the things that disrupts one's life, like the natural catastrophes, the environmental things that we've seen, floods and fires and hurricanes and any number of things. And we're in traumatic stress now, quite frankly, as a nation, because everything has been disrupted. And Mm -hmm. in my work, I look at what I call contextualized stress. And contextualized stress represents a way of conceptualizing stress within the context of the lived experiences of African-American women around race, around gender, around class, and the intersection of the three, as well as how those social determinants of health are experienced, whether it's experienced in the way we live, the way we work, the places where we interact with loved ones and others. And so what we have looked at is seeing if we see a pattern of women having a higher rate of maternal mortality and maternal morbidity, because while we have numbers, about 700 women a year die as a consequence of pregnancy complications, but there are 300,000, 400,000 women who have near misses is what we call them. And Mm -hmm. so those near misses are related to cardiomyopathy and issues around diabetes and hemorrhaging and hypertension. And so what we know is that those risk factors and those outcomes are all related to stress. And so with measures of discrimination, measures of contextualized stress, which deals with both discrimination because of racism and sexism, We've Mm -hmm. been able to show how they are strongly associated and in some instances predictive, meaning that when we have a high level of indication of discrimination, that those women are more likely to have outcomes that are deleterious to them and to their babies. So there's a really rich body of literature that I would say has been developing over the last 20 years. 
that has delineated racism, that has operationalized discrimination experienced by women during pregnancy, and has shown it as being directly related to poor birth as well as maternal outcomes that are deadly, quite frankly, deadly for the mother and the baby. In Mm -hmm. my work, I look at depression. And depression, of course, is a serious matter during pregnancy. And it's even more serious after pregnancy because what we have now is two lives in the balance. So postpartum depression is certainly something that we have to pay close attention to. But in my own work, we've looked at gendered racism. And gendered racism is where you really have racism that is occurring, but now it has the overlay of gendered roles and expectations. So with gendered racism, we've seen that there is a direct relationship between gendered racism and signs of depression during pregnancy, which Mm -hmm. put a woman at greater risk of having postpartum depression with those experiences still following. So if I could give an example, we looked at police violence and women anticipating while pregnant with someday black women that their children might have a negative encounter with the police. What we saw were women who were poor, they earned on average less than $19,000 a year. What we found is for those women who agreed that they anticipated that someday their children would have negative encounters with police, that they were at greater risk of showing signs of depression during pregnancy. So what that says is that the racism, the discrimination is affecting them now even before their children are born. And that racism and that link between racism and depression is also implicated in maternal mortality as we see in instances of what's the physiological response as a result of depression, but also some behavioral responses are leading up to suicide. Wow, that's a lot to process. And that's... Um, <laughs> uh, it's, I'm sure that your work has been very meaningful, but it also can't have been easy for you to delve deep into these topics. And so you were talking about how your research has focused on a lot of the structural and social factors that manifest itself in increased stress levels that then lead to worse health outcomes. And for years, my understanding in preparing for this was that a lot of the medical community sort of assumed that Black women had naturally higher blood pressure, or there were other sort of genetic factors. But a lot of the recent scholarship, including yours, has demonstrated that it's not really about genetics. It's much more about these structural factors. Do you think the medical community has caught up on this? Or do you think that it's still a little bit of a minority kind of pushing against dominant narratives? Well, the residual of that remains, okay? I will say that. They are residuals of those beliefs that you've just indicated, they remain. But there are some changes, I will say, as we talk about epigenetics rather than solely genetics. So epigenetics really deals with how the genes are expressed within the environment. And so when we understand that, we recognize that the genetic composition may be universal across different groups, the different racial groups that we have named and uh, given the label to, quite frankly. But we are increasing understanding that it is within the environment that certain genes are expressed. Now, 
when you get into genetics, one of the seminal studies in terms of addressing this issue of whether or not the poor birth, and I will by extension the higher rates of poor maternal outcomes for black women is what was a study done out of Chicago. And what they did was they looked at African-American women, women who were most recently from Africa, and women who were white women. And what the researchers did was to look at their birth outcomes. And what they found was that for the African women, that their birth outcomes were comparable to white women. So this really challenges a fundamental, deep-seated notion of genetics as Mm -hmm. the explanation for poor birth outcomes. But again, as you've indicated, there's some resistance, but we are getting better and better in terms of understanding the complexity of genes, what it means, and in getting better and better, more recognition is being given to how the environment shapes what the genetic expression would be as it can lead to poor outcomes or even healthier outcomes. And as this recognition begins to grow and gain more traction, are there examples of successful interventions, maybe at the individual hospital level or at the state level, that you have seen that really did make a difference? Oh, yes. I'm happy to say that I have seen, you know, there are programs that were designed like Healthy Start, for instance, that works directly with the communities of women who are deemed to be most at risk and provides those wraparound services that support them. Now, what do I mean by that? So programs that have home visitation, where you can go in and see what's going on with the family, if they need case management, if there are things that the children and the family need to really address those stressors that can be very serious as they relate to outcomes. I'm seeing more emphasis on the role of the doula. So the doula is someone who supports a woman in terms of navigating her pregnancy and both in terms of navigating what is going on within her body, but how she can best maximize the services supports that she gets from a physician. I'm seeing things where their legislative agenda that are afoot now that is looking at all the things that women need so that making certain that we pay better attention to the mental as well as the emotional health of pregnant women. While we've not done as well as we could, but better than it has been in terms of providing for the medical needs of women, but we're not really doing so well, in my opinion, around the mental and emotional health of pregnant women and what it is that are their concerns and how is that supported In New York, for instance, they have a universal mandate for postpartum depression screening. You know, the issue is once you deem that a woman is at risk and there's some concerns that have to be addressed, then where does she get her care from? And so we certainly need to grow that discipline of individuals who have a specialty in maternal mental health and would be available And of course, that's a systems issue about who will pay for it. it, Do you have continuing care after a woman delivers? In my state here in Georgia, we've been successful in terms of having Medicaid for six months after a woman delivers, but it needs to go up to a year. So, but I've seen uh, those things that have happened. 
I'm seeing a real push now for what we're talking about in terms of implicit bias training for healthcare providers so that it is a moment in which deep interrogation of what it is, what are the beliefs and how those beliefs infiltrate the care and the service that they provide for women of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. So those are the things that I've seen that groups like Black Mamas Matter, and I work with the March of Dimes that is doing some things to really rebrand itself around issues of equity. So there are things that are happening. There's a lot to be done, but at least there's a recognition in many sectors to begin to address to head on these disparities that we see in maternal outcomes across the country. Well, it's good to have a slight, you know, kind of positive note there as well. And I want to thank you again for being with us. And my final question again relates to the policies and interventions. So hypothetically, let's say, you know, you have a magic wand and you could change one specific thing. Maybe Mm. it's at the federal policy level, maybe Mm. it's at the state and local level. Mm. What would be the one change that you would make with that magic wand? Oh my, that's a hard question, Cooper. As I've given you all of these other things, wow, what would be the one thing that I would change? I think I would now change the way that healthcare is delivered so that it is truly more integrated. And it's integrated not only what the medical know-how is that we have, but that it is truly part of the movement and fully integrated in terms of the movement for equity for all, for mothers and babies, no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hope that we can move closer to achieving that goal. So once again, this has been our interview with Dr. Fleeta Mask-Jackson. Dr. Jackson, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. And it's been a pleasure for me to speak with you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.